From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling. And I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, it's October and time for another season of Connecting with Walt. Uh, in our last July episode, we left each other on the Magic Kingdom's Main Street, USA. So what have you been up to since then? Well, a, a lot. Um to say the least. So, uh, wow. I mean, I think the first big highlight since the last time uh, we, we picked up on these recordings, probably the highlight was uh, getting to actually take a big group of our listeners down Main Street, USA. I know we or do we record that episode after? I don't remember. We recorded it right after. We did that. Yeah. But that was fun. That's right. No, that was that was fun. And so, um, let's see. So then August came and yeah, it's all been a blur, (laughs) especially with, you know, having to start celebrating Halloween in September Mm -hmm. at the Disney parks, you know, that, that takes up a lot of time. So just, uh, where, where is the time gone? But what have you been up to? You know, it's pretty much the same thing. It's, you know, um, I'm trying to think. Did, I don't think we've really gone anywhere. You know, it, October, it's fall. You know, I think we've been to Lasseter Family Winery. Uh, we're in our little town. Well, what folks may not know is that, especially if you're new to the show, Craig lives in Orlando and I'm in Northern California. So that's why we say west to east and yep. kingdom to kingdom because Disneyland is my kingdom. And, uh, of course, Disney World is Craig's kingdom. So, uh, so uh, near my little town that I live in, uh, we, uh, there's a pl- the Amador County is nearby in Carroll. My wife and I went wine tasting, and that was fun. Mm. And, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's starting to look like fall. It's still a little warm, but some of the trees in our property are turning color. Oh. So, but really just getting ready. Our son's getting married. In, yes. in a little while. So Congrats. we're excited about that. Thank you. So uh, anyway, so that so there's been a lot. Carol's been involved in that a bit. And anyway, so oh. anyway, so yeah, so just just doing that, you know, working. Mm-hmm. But um, where but, do we find the time? I know. <laughs> but there's a big anniversary coming up in your kingdom. Walt Disney World's 45th anniversary it, well, is in October. It already happened. It did, yeah. So, and yeah. and it's funny because our son's birthday is October 1st. He's a little younger than than Disney World, but um, significantly younger. But um, what we, what did you do um, to celebrate? Um, oh, I 
I'm going to do a little <laughs> uh, a little time traveling here and say that I was a responsible employee and <laughs> I went to cover the little bit of uh, celebrations that were actually happening the morning of the 45th anniversary. Uh, and I could be completely wrong about that. I could send one of my minions to go do all of that and enjoy it from my my couch but I, i'm guessing i was there uh there just taking in what little uh, celebrations were happening with all of us crazies out there who care way too much yeah yeah we we know disney fans like to go backstage so so we'll take you backstage here at the at the diz ranch um we, <laughs> we are actually recording this a little in advance because uh where I'm at, but when this show airs, I'm going to be in Pennsylvania yeah. um, for our son's wedding. So we've had to record this show a bit before the uh, anniversary of Walt Disney World. Yeah. So I, I put Craig on the spot there. But but what is planned for the 45th anniversary? I, I know there was a, a special celebration in the morning on the castle stage. And, uh, you know, of course, special desserts and... Um, oh, are they baking like a hundred commemorative cupcakes who, for the thirty thousand people that are going to be there? Who even knows? <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm sure, regardless, it will be exciting just to say that we were there mm-hmm. on the day of the 45th anniversary. So, oh yeah, it, it, that is fun, and you can buy the special shirt. Yeah, so. that was uh, assuming they don't sell out early because I'm sure they will, <laughs> but. Uh, no, it's I, I was there for the fortieth, um, so I, I I feel lucky that I get to be there on the forty fifth as well too, and mm-hmm. I'm assuming the fiftieth, and hopefully thereafter. Yeah, yeah, fiftieth will be huge. Yeah, but um, yes, but this October season also marks the first anniversary of connecting with Walt, joining the Dis Unplugged podcast network. Yeah, and it also marks the first season connecting with Walt now has its own iTunes feed rather than being part of the Dis Unplugged Walt Disney World podcast feed. If you're listening to this show, you most likely figure that out. But if you have not subscribed, uh, we hope you do so. And if you like the show, please um, rate us and, and leave some positive comments so other people can connect with Walt as well. And I thought this would be a good time, since we'll be getting some new listeners joining us. Uh, um, you know, Talk about how Craig and I became part of the Diz and how Connecting with Walt became a part of the Diz Unplugged network, podcast network. So, Craig, how... Uh, you're you were around longer than I. How did you um, become a part of the Diz? Oh, I just I was one of those lucky people out there who had really no connection to anyone who was with the Diz. Um, I I was a casual listener while I was in college, and I, I listened to podcasts in the background while I was studying to uh, help me concentrate. I know that makes zero sense, but trust me, it, it works. And uh, and um, luckily, my sister was, uh, she was even crazier about the whole podcast scene than I was. So uh, she she took the effort to make sure that she was friends with, with everyone that she could be on social media. And so whenever Pete put the uh, call out for... Uh, 
for a new videographer. I was lucky enough to uh, to have her, you know, be there to say, "Hey, you. I, I know you know who they are, and I think this is something that you need to seriously take into consideration." And I did, and I, you know, I, I, almost everyone else I've known has is uh with the exception of one or two people has you know been introduced by someone uh that they've that has been in tight with the rest of the Diz team and so I'm I'm lucky and gracious enough to be an outsider that that got lucky so yeah I know I said lucky like 18 times there but <laughs> I mean that's that that's really how I got here so yeah, and uh, and and have you been a Disney fan all your life? Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I, I obviously stretch beyond Disney too. You know, whenever growing up, a lot of stuff uh, stuck with me. You know, whether it's yeah, whether it was watching Disney movies or even uh, even Looney Tunes or hanging out at home on sick days watching Bob Barker on. Oh, on yes. prices right you know a lot a <laughs> lot of stuff influenced me all throughout my life but uh disney kind of just stuck out a little bit more than everything else so yeah and for me i've been a disney fan all my life i always say i, I apparently i was taken to the park when i was one year old and i always say that i guess when tinkerbell flew over the park i must have inhaled a little pixie dust <laughs> got into my veins because i have been a disney fan all my life I am old enough to have gone to the park in some of its earliest years. So I definitely remember uh, I, I, I remember the park well before Walt passed away. Yeah. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to, to have uh, had a very special relationship with Mickey when I was younger and um, always very grateful I was a part of his club. And the way I found out about the Diz was really, uh, you know, the internet was new. Uh, I was a teacher, and I, uh, I, you know, the teachers got a special deal on on personal computers. Yeah. So I, of course, got one, took it home, and was fooling around. And I was looking up Disney things. So I think we were planning a trip, and I found the Diz boards, mm. and I, I became a lurker for years, and then. Um, we I, and then I, I I asked for Christmas for my first um, iPod because I wanted to listen to the Diz Unplugged podcast, and um, in fact, it, it just finally died. My iPod Classic <laughs> just a couple months ago, and uh, and so I didn't really tell Carol about the show or anything. I just sort of listened. I had my name, my you know my. Disboard's name's Mary Musketeer, and I, I just sort of lurked, didn't do much. Yeah. And then um, Podcast Cruise 1.0 was coming along, and we were, uh, we were, um, we, uh, I, I was thinking about going on it and all that, but then we found out our granddaughter was going to be born, but we were not going to be able to. Uh, go there mm -hmm. um, and so because she was being born in Guam because our, our, our son's in the military and his wife at the time um, you know they were overseas in Guam and it just wasn't going to be possible for us to travel my wife was broken hearted I said you know what we're going on a Disney cruise and I booked podcast cruise 1.0 mm -hmm. and she was born during the cruise and we were at wine tasting when we got a phone call on the ship 
and we were told we were grandparents and it got announced and so Pete announced it on the podcast and and so she's been known as the, as the podcast crew's baby she's now <laughs> 7 years old and we um anyway so so that's sort of and we got to meet some of the dizzers we got to meet Kevin and John and Pete we became friends over time uh, I was since I live in Northern California I would go to the Walt Disney Family Museum routinely and then Pete uh, had allowed me to write some for the Diz some blogs on the Walt Disney Family Museum and their uh, their special exhibits and I knew the Disneyland show was starting up, and I didn't apply to be a, one of the correspondents because I thought, oh, you know, you have to live in Southern California mm-hmm. for that. And, of course, when they selected all the people, only two of the people selected, I think, two or three, lived actually near the park. And one lived actually in down in the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley area, and then one lived in Fresno in the Central Valley. And I thought, oh, Hey, I should have applied. Well, anyway, time went on, and Tom Bell, who's the host and producer, invited me to be a guest on the show to talk about a new exhibit. It was the first special exhibit the Walt Disney Family Museum was doing, and it was on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So I came on the show, talked about the exhibit, talked about the museum, and seemed to go very well. Tom thanked me. Everybody thanked me. It was great. And that was it. And I figured that one and done. And then about two weeks later, I was, Tom contacted me and asked would I like to be on the show again. And I said, sure. And he said, but this time I want you to fully participate. And he told me to, um, what, what I needed to prepare for for the show and things like that, and really emphasized to be a full participant. And I told my wife, Carol, I said, I think I'm being auditioned, but I'm not <laughs> sure. And so I did, went on. Uh, again, I was already by that time friends with the, everybody on the show. Yeah. The one I hadn't met yet was Tony. And and so, and so Wayne um, Toyga, who was the Disney historian on the show at the time, he was, um, I, I, I mean, I knew them all. He was, he was on the show. And uh, so it, it seemed to go well, had fun. And then time... Then it was again, thank you. A couple weeks later, I got a message from Tom inviting me to be on the show. Yeah. And as as a a regular, you know, correspondent. And then, um, so we all have our little niches, but then due to his work responsibilities, Wayne had to leave the show. And so then I took on the historian role and started the Disneyland history episodes and and other things and uh, and and you know reporting on events at the Walt Disney Family Museum and um that got the attention of our Walt Disney World listeners and they wanted the same type of history segments on Walt Disney World. So Pete and I started to talk about it. Pete approached me. I'd been wanting to expand the history um episodes to go beyond Disneyland because I thought there was an audience there. So Pete and I started to sit down, talked about it. It took a while figure out format, uh, co-hosts, producers. Um, we went through a, a series. And I think along that time, you came, you came onto the scene as we were in like the very early stages, I think, yeah. of talking about it. And... Um, because it was something to be discussed and dropped and then discussed and dropped. And then uh, and then I p- 
proposed I wanted it to go beyond Walt Disney World and um and then yeah at the it got picked up and you know we settled on a date which was a year ago and we launched we launched the um show you were selected as the host and producer which was co-host and producer which was a brilliant brilliant selection by Pete Pete's and the nice thing about Pete is Pete is really good at recognizing talent in people and then let and then and and telling them you know this is what I see you doing this is what I envision and then letting them run with it and then Pete is very hands-off he took made it very clear that you and I the content was ours this was our show and he was not going to interfere with it um uh, you know, and uh, unless we really, I guess, flub something <laughs> up, but um, he's very good about that. I and am. you know, and some people it work that works, and you know, others it doesn't. Others need more creative control. And um, but it, it, you know, it, it just works. So you know, a big thanks to Pete Werner for yes. giving us this yep. opportunity. And um, and you know the mission statement is for that I wrote for the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast was that we would give listeners uh, insights into the motivations, innovations, and creativity of Walt Disney and his staff by exploring the backstories and history of the Disney theme parks, resorts, attractions, live action and animated films, and noteworthy events in the Disney Company. Each segment topic will always connect with Walt Disney's philosophy, planning, foresight, and imagination. Connecting with Walt will uphold the Disney Unplugged's philosophy of unofficial, unbiased, and unplugged. So, although Connecting with Walt started out being very Walt Disney World history-centric in response to those listeners' requests... Our original intention with the show was to always go beyond the parks, um, which we have from time to time. But beginning with this first season of our second year, Craig and I will continue to share stories about Walt Disney World. But we're going to start stepping outside the park more and more to share stories about Walt Disney and other people, places, and events in Disney history. So we're going to start out the season by taking a walk through the history of the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland. Then we'll go back and see how Marceline Missouri inspired Walt Disney the boy to become the man we came to know through his films, television, and the parks. And then in our third episode this season, we'll visit Walt and his partner of iWorks as they launch their first animation studio, Laugh-A-Gram. And then we're going to end our season with a conversation with Disney artist, animator, storyman, and Disney legend Floyd Norman. So, Craig, do you have your pumpkin spice scented candles lit and a pumpkin spice latte ready for the show? I wish I did, but it's October. <laughs> I'm pumpkined out. I I go strong in September and then take off October and then come November <clears throat> I'm like, okay, now I have to stock up because pumpkin's going to be going away soon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. Now, now, for decades, the story has been told that Walt Disney was never able to create the fantasy land of his vision at Disneyland. Compromises had to be made primarily due to lack of time and money. 
And Fantasyland was built with the idea that it would be updated later with more detail. When the park opened, the elaborate castle courtyard that Walt and his designers had planned had been retooled to medieval traveling tournament tents with a backstory that rides were brought into the castle courtyard for the temporary festivities. Is it true that when Stroibogland Canal Boats opened in 1956, the European storybook facades of the miniature buildings actually represented the fantasy land Walt envisioned? Well, for the an- I'm going to do a little bait and switch here. For the answer to that question and much more, listen to my episode 60 Years of Disneyland, Disneyland's Second Quarter Century, 1980-89, Part 1, on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition, because we get much more into the background of why Walt wanted Fantasyland hmm. in the first place. Now, Imagineer Tony Baxter once said, if anything at the park was pure Walt, it was Fantasyland. Now, when Roy Disney convinced Walt they needed to build a theme park to bring in the revenue needed to finance Walt's dream of Epcot the city for the Florida project, Walt was not interested in simply building another Disneyland. He had already done that, and he did not like to repeat himself. So when the Imagineers were tasked with designing the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland, they looked to create attractions themed to a different set of Disney films. In Disneyland's Fantasyland, the Dark Ride attractions were classified by mood. Snow White's adventures was scary. Peter Pan was beautiful. And Mr. Toad was crazy. The Imagineers decided to retain the same moods for the Magic Kingdom, but replace Snow White with a Sleeping Beauty attraction, which would be near King Stephen's Banquet Hall, since he was Aurora's father. Although ironic that it's in Cinderella Castle. Yeah. <laughs> um, Peter Pan would be replaced with a Mary Poppins Jolly Holiday attraction, and Mr. Toad with an Ichabod Crane and the Headless Horseman attraction to tie in with the nearby Liberty Square. However, after Walt Disney's passing, Roy decided to be practical and remain with what had already proven to be successful at Disneyland and stay with the same attractions. The Imagineers did take this opportunity to update and change the attractions so they were not exact duplicates of the originals at Disneyland. So, Craig, do you think if these attractions would have had the – do you think they would have had the same level of popularity as the attractions that were built based on Disneyland's original attractions? Um. Here's yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough. We've we've kind of we've kind of covered this now and then, um, just randomly bringing it up. And my opinions kind of changed back and forth. Yeah, I think if if there were some differences between Disneyland and Walt Disney World, I think Disney World's would have been just as uh, heavily appreciated as. Um, it's the ones out of Disneyland, but I think one one of the big things that happened um, in over the past couple months since we've been on hiatus earlier in September, uh, the the video was released with Tony Baxter um, sitting down with D twenty three and talking about the Mary Poppins Jolly Holiday dark ride 
and I mean, the internet just, uh, the Disney internet, I should say, just blew up for a while with people wondering, like, how could this not have been made? How could, how could something like this just never see the light of day? And, you know, that's, that's where the realization comes in that, yeah, it's, you know, as long as the creativity was there and the, the ingenuity and the Disney spirit, I, I think, I think any of those attractions would have been just as popular as the ones that were out in Disneyland. I think so too. Now that, that Mary Poppins design that he did, of course he was, he did that when he was relatively young. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, which still, which shows just how brilliant he is. And um, yeah, I, I think the only one that probably would have been in danger of, of closing early uh, it probably would have been the Sleeping Beauty attraction when, as we get into how um, Cinderella made became more of a presence in the park, uh, yeah. you know, some of the, the King Stephen Banquet Halls renamed and all that. I have a feeling Sleeping Beauty probably would have yeah. found a, a new place well, in and the park. I, I would actually say the same thing for that, too, uh, that that one would be in danger just because... Um, in my opinion, while the art and the music and everything behind Sleeping Beauty is is just brilliant, um, it, spoiler alert, we'll talk a little bit with uh, Floyd Norman about that later on in the month and uh, bring up Sleeping Beauty just once or twice in there. But uh, I, the narrative of the entire story isn't isn't that strong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what would have brought it home though is if there was. If there was a really incredible Maleficent dragon, yeah, yeah, that probably that would have been that would have been it with some cool special effects. Yeah. So. Oh no, I, I agree. It, if it, mm-hmm. done right, done right, it could have transcended needing the narrative. Um, on the you know Kathy from our our Disney World edition podcast, she she's spoken about how uh, you know she experienced a lot of the dark ride attractions before she had even seen the movies, which just always mm-hmm. made me want to hit myself in the face. The fact that someone could <laughs> ride Peter Pan and not see, not see the movie, but you know, she, the narratives of those attractions are done so well. She's able to get the gist of, mm-hmm. of what the story was being told. And with, with sleeping beauty having such, in my opinion, a weak narrative, I feel like uh, the attraction would have had to go above and beyond with everything else to kind of keep it, keep it timeless. Um, and you know, if anyone could do it, it would be Disney, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think, you know, Mary Poppins, we know that would have been a hit. Um, even Ichabod and the headless horseman, uh, you know, you, you ask some people what they're, what they're most excited to see at Mickey's not so scary Halloween party, or I'm sure now for Mickey's Halloween party at Disneyland, uh, who's excited to see the headless horseman. Oh, I, I everyone is. Everyone. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the one Disney short. I always watch at Halloween. I, I, in fact, I, you know, out of all the Disney Halloween films, I always make sure I watch, you know, Mr. Toad yeah. and, and Ichabod Crane. So, 
Um, but now let's take a look at some of the highlights of the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland on opening day through today. Now, on our walk through Fantasyland, this is just going to be an overview of the realm. In future episodes of Connecting with Walt and the Disney Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition, I'll provide a more depth, in-depth interview of some of these attractions over time. Um, as in Disneyland, where the Castle of Sleeping Beauty serves as the entrance to Fantasyland, the Castle of Cinderella welcomes us to the Fantasyland of the Magic Kingdom. And this is the realm where the Disney characters from our favorite Disney films live in happiness and harmony. Um, Cinderella Castle stands 189 feet tall and is the second largest of the Disney castles. Like Sleeping Beauty Castle, Forced Perspective is also utilized on this castle. A Cinderella Castle was completed in in July 1971, after 18 months of construction, six months longer than it took to build all of Disneyland. Unlike Sleeping Beauty Castle, which opened before the release of the film, Cinderella Castle opened to the public 31 years after the release of its animated film. Cinderella Castle features a stunning mosaic uh, depicting the story of Cinderella designed by Imagineer Dorothea Redman. And the murals were crafted and set in place by a team of six artists led by mosaicist Hans Joachim Scharf. And the 15 by 10 foot panels are shaped in a gothic arch. And the murals took 22 months to complete and contain just over 300,000 pieces of Italian glass and rough smalty glass made specifically for mosaics, traditionally used by Italian craftsmen. And it's in more than 500 colors. Many of the hand-cut tiles are fused with sterling silver and 14 karat or 58% gold, and some are as small as the head of a tack. Take a close look at Cinderella's wicked stepsisters, Drizella and Anastasia. Their faces show their true colors. One is made with tiles green with envy, and the other with tiles red with rage, as they watch Cinderella try on the glass slipper. In scenes where their eyes are open, they shine like jealous green emeralds. Not only can guests walk through the castle, but they can also dine with the princesses inside the castle at what is now Cinderella's royal table. Uh, similar to his Main Street USA apartment at Disneyland and the family apartment that had been designed above Pirates of the Caribbean in New Orleans Square, Walt had plans to construct a private apartment inside Cinderella Castle. Because the castle was not constructed until after his death, Walt's brother Roy Disney halted construction of the apartment. The space served as a call center, a storage area, and a cast member dressing room until 2007, when the Disney Imagineers made Walt's dream a reality, and the Cinderella Castle Dream Suite was opened. During the Year of a Million Dreams celebration, a stay in the suite would be awarded to lucky families. Mm-hmm. When you enter Fantasyland through the castle, look up and notice there are block walls and castle turrets above the rooftops of the attractions. When entering the Enchanted Forest, you pass under arches similar in style to the castle. All this was designed to reinforce the castle fortress village setting for the realm and provides a historic connection to the original purpose of the medieval European castles. If you'd like to learn more about all the castles of the Magic Kingdoms around the world, listen to Connecting with Walt, Episode 17, titled Castles Built from Dreams. 
Now, the Cinderella story is continued in the entry courtyard where a lovely bronze statue of Cinderella is surrounded by her little mouse and bird friends on the basin of a fountain. And the mosaics and fountains are examples of that extra touch the Imaginers put into the parks and the story they are trying to convey. The mosaics and fountains serve no operational function. They exist simply to delight and enchant guests and continue the story of Cinderella. Exiting the castle into the courtyard we see the medieval traveling tournament tent theme from Disneyland was duplicated for this fantasy land. The Cinderella story is continued with Cinderella's golden carousel. This carousel was built by the Philadelphia Toboggan Company in 1917 and originally named the Liberty Carousel. The carousel delighted children for decades at Belle Isle Park in Detroit, Michigan, then at Olympic Park, in Maplewood, New Jersey, before being purchased by Walt Disney Productions in 1967. The carousel was completely refurbished and repainted to match the Cinderella theme. The story of Cinderella is retold in 18 hand-painted scenes in the wooden canopy, but the Liberty Maidens from the carousel's original theme can still be seen on the carousel. Many of the wooden horses were replaced with fiberglass replicas, and all were reposed to have them charge instead of canter. All the horses are painted white because white horses are associated with heroes. The chariot on the casserole is from the original Liberty, but was lost during the refurbishment. It was rediscovered and reinstalled in 1997. On June 1st, 2010, the carousel's name was changed to Prince Charming Regal Carousel. Yes, the most unnecessary name change. Well, well when they cha- yeah, and they changed the backstory on that a bit also because you know when when peace and harmony came to the kingdom, uh it gave um the prince more time to uh, practice his jousting skills. So this carousel was created, but it was outside the, uh, the courtyard of the castle. And it would allow him, he would ride the horses, and he could practice his aim with his jousting spear, because there would be a little round, uh, oh, sort of like a, a ring. Yeah. And as he went around, he would pierce the ring. Well, he had so much fun that he and Cinderella had the uh, the carousel brought into the castle courtyard. So all of the the the, the citizens of the realm mm-hmm. could also enjoy the, um, the 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 little game. So anyway, <laughs> yep. I wish I could have been sitting in on, on that meeting with Imagineering whenever they decided all that. But it is curious. I mean, I wonder what. Yeah, I, I did have always wondered what made them decide to um, change the name, unless they just wanted to make Prince Charming more of a presence somehow in the park. Could be very well. Could be. Anyway. <clears throat> Now, the Fantasyland opening day attractions included Dumbo the Frying, Flying Elephants, which was a B ticket, Mad Tea Party, a B ticket. Remember, this is the days, of course, of the ticket books. Mm-hmm. Snow White's Adventures, C ticket. It wasn't scary until 1994. 
Um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Submarine Voyage, which is an e-ticket. Cinderella's Golden Carousel, A-ticket. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, a C-ticket. The Mickey Mouse Review, Audio Animatronics Musical Attraction, was an E-ticket. And It's a Small World, an E-ticket. And The Skyway to Tomorrowland, a C-ticket. We'll talk about that attraction when we uh, visit Tomorrowland. Mm -hmm. Um, food and refreshments included King Stephen's Banquet Hall in Cinderella Castle. I still don't quite get that. Um, Troubadour Tavern, sponsored by Welch's. Pinocchio Village Hoose Restaurant. Um, tournament Tent. The Round Table, which was not a pizza um, establishment. It was sponsored by Borden. Huh. And Lancer's Inn. Shops and stores included Fantasyland Art Festival, the Castle Camera Shop, the Mad Hatter, Tinkerbell Toy Shop, uh, Merlin's Magic Shop, the Aristocats Gift Shop, and the King's Gallery. Entertainment included the Pearly Band, of course, assorted Walt Disney characters, the Polka Band, and the Briny Boys. Now, Craig, how old were you, uh, or, or what year did you first visit Walt Disney World? I... I think my first trip would have been in 1992. That was that was at least my first family vacation. I I know my my grandparents had been, you know, they were snowbirds, so they were coming down to Florida and I'm sure I I was taken to Disney World as an infant even before that, but my first family vacation was in 92, so I would have been 5 years old at the time um and uh you know i i don't try to pretend that i can remember anything from that trip because i really don't but uh luckily my parents did a good job of taking photos of of several trips in my uh childhood so i'm able to to look back every now and then whenever the photos all pop up and i can see see some of those memories and uh you know one thing i can say is that uh just based off of the last time i looked at them um we spent a lot of time in fantasy land and it's not even just because that's that's where all the the classic attractions were and the most family-friendly attractions but i i can remember just looking at the pictures of the days wherever characters wandered around in walt disney world the way they still do in disneyland and you could just mm-hmm. have random encounters anywhere through there. And, of, of course, I remember the Skyway, is, as I liked to call it that time, the buckets. And We all did, yeah, the uh, sky buckets. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I uh, just random bits and pieces. And then uh, we were on, like, an every two-year structure for a while. So uh, I know we went back in 94, 96, and the memories get gets stronger the older i get and i can i can remember the switch over to having uh, legend of the lion king there mm-hmm. towards i guess that would have been probably the 96 trip it would have been too soon to have it open in 94 um but yeah no i i've always i've always had fond memories of fantasy land and then it's it's kind of it's kind of ironic in a way too then that uh since I've been living in Florida, the one significant change that's really happened in any Disney park. I mean, obviously now with with Animal Kingdom going through its transition, that's a different story. But until then, I mean, New Fantasyland 
and having all of that uh, come into to reality. That's it's been very interesting to watch it all, and uh, the fact that I was actually lucky enough uh, as a freelancer for the Diz to be able to go to the grand opening event for that too. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of like I have this full circle with Fantasyland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I my first visit was actually 1974. Uh, oh. I was visiting my grandparents and who were up in Kentucky and and some relatives in Ohio and they, but I had relatives in Florida who came up to visit and then and they lived in Orlando uh, my and, and my dad's um, oldest sister and her husband and so they uh, they I drove with them. They drove me back to Orlando because I'd never been to Walt Disney yeah. World. And so I spent some time with them and we went to the parks and uh, park, I should yeah. say. <laughs> and uh, because then it was Walt Disney World was the Magic Kingdom and, um, and, and you know, the resorts. And uh, yeah, so I remember all these attractions. I have really vivid memories of them. And because I was just thinking, this is so much larger than Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> That's you cool. know, because so Disneyland cool. I knew really well. So I, I was not, I, I was aware of Disney World's existence, Walt Disney World's existence, but I had no idea. Yeah. You know, and those were the days when you knew you had to take the monorail or the ferry boat. Those were the only ways to get there and, you know, all that. So it was, it was, it was an experience. Now, as I said earlier, although many of the attractions were based on Disneyland's, the Imagineers added elements and special effects to make the attractions unique. And in some cases, such as the dark rides, like Peter Pan and Snow White, yeah. they they changed the story scenes. They were 25% um, longer yep. than Disneyland's ver- versions. Uh, Snow, your Snow White actually had an ending yeah. with um, the, Snow, the evil queen you know, trying to push a giant gemstone down to crush the dwarves. Ours, it's, and they lived happily ever after. And, <laughs> Uh, so sort of abruptly and so one of the most popular attractions at Disneyland was It's a Small World the Magic Kingdom's version however would differ from Disneyland's in several ways most notably the elaborately detailed facade is absent Uh, that was probably the one thing that shocked me the most yeah my, my first visit to disney world and and if you've not been to disneyland or seen photos of of the disneyland version of this attraction just look them up and 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 you'll you'll be a little surprised at the difference um the queue at at the magic kingdom is indoors the show building was constructed at ground level whereas at disneyland you have to walk down to it um and and there's two large openings for the canal system and a separate covered porch buildings attached to the front within the queue is was an updated mural with a with a design heavily influenced by the late 60s and early 70s style. The interior of the Magic Kingdom's It's a Small World is also significantly different. Each different show scene is set in a separate room, as opposed to one single room with scenery. each room is flooded. The boats follow an underwater guide rather than sailing through a canal flume. Um, the attraction 
has received very little attention over the years. Uh, by 2004, guests were complaining about the poor sound system, non-operational dolls, and light fixtures that had gone dark because they couldn't be replaced. As they were so old, they were no longer being made. <laughs> So, in the summer of 2004, It's a Small World closed for refurb- major refurbishment. The attraction was stripped down to its bare shell and completely rebuilt. On March 20th, 2005, the attraction reopened with a new queue layout, a new mural based on the Disneyland's um, facade, and new lights and sound system, um, refreshed um audio animatronics, and a newly restored original soundtrack. So, so Craig, you know, this was probably, you know, one of your favorites when you were a youth. And um, so what do you think of, of It's a Small World? Well, I, I can say it wasn't one of my favorites whenever I was really? young. Uh, it was, well, oh, that's because you're so jaded. I, I, I did grow <laughs> up in the generation that was, you know, constantly going on and on about how obnoxious it's a small world was and you know it doesn't help then whenever there's disney movies like lion king also making that joke right in there but um you know it's one that i have come to appreciate uh year after year after year and then seeing disneyland's uh kind of that that really thrust it forward um you know that i strongly believe that walt disney worlds is uh, extremely inferior compared to Disneyland. Um, and I, I know it just got a little bit of TLC uh, over the past couple weeks out here and that a lot of the effects are working again. A lot of the animatronics are working again. But uh, the my issue with Walt Disney World's Small World is that it just feels like it's very bare compared to Disneyland's, which feels just packed with something mm-hmm. to look at everywhere um but you know now now it's become that ride that you know if i if i didn't live here i would be going on it's a small world every single trip without a doubt yeah that that was the thing that struck me and i think it's because in the magic kingdom it's the separate scenes are in their own room. So I agree, that's the thing that strikes me as the major difference. Even though the Magic Kingdoms has more dolls, um, because of that separation, they have more space to to be within. And so it does give them, I I always joke that you could put a bowling alley in that attraction. And, um, And ours, because it is smaller... Oh, even though we have less dolls, we have several scenes sort of um, scrunched together in one room, yeah, in but- one showroom. So it gives it this, as a result, there's this lushness to it. Um, there's almost an overwhelming feeling in, in, in our attraction because they've had to cram so much into it. Yeah. And um, so I th- I th- that's the major difference. I, I, of course, grew up the generation that delights in this ride because it was new. It was magical. It, um, For my generation, it epitomizes Walt's positive, you know, attitude and yeah. outlook on the world. And um, that, that he was so optimistic about what the future could be. And this and Carousel of Progress... Uh, to me, those are the quintessential rides that capture Walt Disney's personality. Yeah. So I love this attraction. This is a must-do attraction for me in either park um, for that reason. Yeah. 
I know it's your favorite. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of them, yes. So uh, anyway, um, the, the other e-ticket attraction was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which covered about 25% of Fantasyland. Um, this popular attraction was also based on the attraction in Tomorrowland Lagoon at Disneyland. Um, however, unlike the Disneyland attraction, which featured a ride beneath the polar ice cap aboard U.S. Navy-themed submarines, the Magic Kingdom submarine attraction was based on the film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and guided by Captain Nemo, who was voiced by Pete Renaday, who also voiced Henry the Bear in The Country Bear Chamboree. Um, with 12 38-passenger submarines styled to look like the Nautilus from the film, which was the coolest part of this whole attraction to me. Um, guests boarded Captain Nemo's Nautilus submarine and traveled on a voyage through liquid space, just like in the Jules Verne book that inspired the film. Now, some of this was very much like the Disneyland version. The submarine passed by polar ice caps, rediscovered the lost city of Atlantis, and and, and the curious part is observed mesmerizing mermaids and all that. So, like I said, scenes very similar to the Disneyland attraction. Um, But then guests thrilled at the sight of animatronic sea monsters guarding treasure. And one of the best scenes, they witnessed a giant squid attacking another Nautilus submarine. So the attraction closed on September 4th, 1994 for refurbishment, but was never to reopen. The reasons given for its closure ranged from constant breakdown, slow loading, long lines, and high maintenance costs. The 11.5 million gallon tank had to be drained several times a year so the attraction could be cleaned of any pond scum, although they didn't always drain it as often as they needed. And time was hard on the submarines. The fiberglass hulls were leaky, although this has been disputed by some former attraction guides. Um, The sound system was poor and the air conditioning prone to breaking down. Reportedly, though, the 1994 closure was not originally intended to be permanent. Supposedly, Disney was seeking a corporate sponsor to finance the attraction's refurbishment and operational expenses. By 1996, when they were unsuccessful, it was announced the attraction would not be reopening. So the submarines were left inside the lagoon for several months. The queue became a meet-and-greet area with the lagoon reduced to simply a backdrop. In April 2004, props started to be removed from the rear of the lagoon. In May, a construction wall went up to hide the lagoon from view of the guests. By July, the lagoon was drained and demolition began. The submarines were scrapped. Most were moved to Walt Disney World's Boneyard and buried in a landfill later on. Two submarines were saved and sent to Disney Cruise Line's Castaway Key. One submarine was painted red and sunk in the lagoon as an attraction for snorkelers to explore, and the other was buried in the sand for children to play on. However, the pair of submarines later disappeared. But there is actually there is one submarine still in the snorkel area. Snow. It is still yes. there because some people have reported that it is gone. I I am speaking as of our last podcast cruise. Wonderful. That is great. So, so I'm yeah. I'm glad to hear because there in one of the stories I read, I read that the three submarines 
were removed, but I could never confirm that third submarine. And where did it go? And and one of the one of the accounts I read was three were sent to Castaway Key, two were put out, and then two were lost, disappeared. But then I heard nothing about the third one. Yeah, no, there there so. is one. Assuming I, I mean, I was just at Castaway Key very recently. I didn't go snorkeling. <clears throat> Uh, this time though but whenever Kylie and I went snorkeling in December 14 I guess it was now wow it's been a while um, we we found the Nautilus in the snorkel area and it was there was something just creepy about it um, <laughs> just sitting there abandoned not not complete not like it used to be and uh, I guess just knowing that I it times i did ride it you know i i was there for two of my trips and, and i know i waited in some of those long lines that people always complained about uh to get on there but yeah it's just eerie so so what do you remember about this attraction i i remember the lines um <laughs> i i just remember how massive and expansive the the actual lagoon area was um you know obviously at disneyland's the way it's all set up and built it just it kind of blends in beautifully with the area whereas Mm -hmm. in disney world it you know from my memories of it even watching it sit for years and years and years it always just felt like this big awkward pool that was just dropped there that had so much potential and of, of course everyone everyone remembers the the nautilus submarines moving around in there mm-hmm. um it's they're, they're, it's just so iconic uh you know I, I i can remember bits and pieces being on the ride and i i've watched videos to to help me remember more on that but you know the even if i didn't see one of the subs uh submerged on castaway key i it just i i can close my eyes and i can picture them moving around in fantasy land yeah. Oh, yeah. I I have vivid memories of this because I just I was used to Disneyland's version in the nuclear style subs. Yeah. I was just so blown away because Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea was one of my favorite films when I was a boy. Because you know it was when I was a boy, the films came out every seven years or so, mm-hmm. and that included some of the classic live action films. So I had seen it, I'd, and it inspired me to read the book. Um, I saw it maybe when I was about nine or something. And so I love that film. And uh, I just thought that was so cool. And Walt Disney wanted to have those subs in at Disneyland, but the sponsor uh, who, you know, was paying for the subs and the Navy, um, they they wanted the subs that that the contractor was actually building for the Navy. Yeah. They wanted that style. So um, that's what Walt had to go with. If he didn't want to pay for the subs totally on his own, which he couldn't afford to do. So, yep. but yeah, that, I thought that was that. And I do agree with you. I did think that they had a harder time blending in that lagoon than they did at, at, Disneyland because you know they had the Matterhorn yep. there and it's sort of mountains and and then the sort of the rolling area of Atopia right next to it. Yeah. So um, it was a little easier for them to blend in the the lagoon in our area. Yeah. So 
Um, now, after the lagoon was filled in, the site became home to the Fantasyland Character Festival and later the Hundred Acre Wood Playground. Um, the acre, the area is now part of the expanded Fantasyland Enchanted Forest, and we'll get to that area in a moment. Of the three original dark rides from opening of Fantasyland, only one remains. Snow White's Adventures, later Snow White's Scary Adventures, closed to be replaced by Princess Fairy Tale Hall in 2013, where guests can wait in line for hours to meet and hug some of their favorite Disney princesses. If the stories are true, the attraction track still remains beneath the floor. A little more on this later in our story. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride still has a loyal following amongst Disney fans and is arguably the most missed attraction at the Magic Kingdom. It was a surprise to many that this attraction was included at the Magic Kingdom since it is not based on a feature-length animated film, and Mr. Toad has never been considered a classic Disney character. However, due to its consistent popularity at Disneyland, this attraction was included in the plans as an opening day attraction. According to Imagineer and Disney legend Rolly Crump, Dick Irvine, put it, who was uh, um, in charge of Imagineering at the time, put him in charge of the Fantasyland attractions. Because Mr. Toad was so insanely popular at Disneyland, Dick Nunes told Rolly he wanted to have two identical Mr. Toad attractions side by side at Walt Disney World. So you know how people criticize that they built extra theaters for Soarin' and extra, you know, extra tracks for Toy Story Midway Mania rather than building a new attraction? Well, even back then in the 70s, yep. the late 60s, that that idea was in the heads of, of Disney executives. Exactly. Rolly did not agree with that idea and told Dick to let him think about it and he'd come up with something even better. What Rolly came up with is what was constructed in the park. Two Mr. Toad rides in the same show building, but completely different from the track layout to the story scenes. Both sides began in Toad Hall, but one car turned to the right and broke through a wall, whilst the other would turn to the left and go through the pantry. Track A included scenes such as the trophy room and gypsy camp, which were not on track B. Track B provided unique scenes such as the barn and prison scenes. The motor cars from each track would meet up again in Town Square and almost crash into each other before continuing on their own separate adventures. Of course, both tracks ended in Hades. This was a unique experience in a Disney dark ride, as riding twice could offer two different ride experiences. Did, so, did, do you, did you ride this attraction? Yeah, I, I yeah. probably rode it all vacations and i i remember distinctly the two different tracks um and yeah no I, it's it's sorely missed um i i do enjoy that i get to get my disneyland fix every now and then of mr toad but um as as we're just going to talk about in the next couple seconds here uh while the replacement attraction is charming and uh just really well done um, it just, it, it doesn't fill that toad hole. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Um, 
Now, now, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride provided another first. The first organized guest protest when it was announced it would close to make way for The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Guests wearing Save Mr. Toad, Save Toad Hall, and this is my favorite, Ask Me Why Mickey is Killing Mr. Toad, T-shirts, staged toad inns, and marched and chanted in front of the attraction. Sadly, it was all for naught because, of course, uh, Disney retail realized they could sell more plush poos than they could plush toads. Uh, With only one week's notice, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride closed on September 7th, 1998, and the show building gutted in preparation for Winnie the Pooh and his friends. If you miss Mr. Toad, you can still see him memorialized in the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh attraction. Mr. Toad can be seen handling over the deed to the property on the left wall of the scene in Owl's House, one of the first scenes in the attraction. And in fond remembrance to the lively Toad, cast members in the Magic Kingdom have named one of their break rooms the J. Thaddeus Toad Memorial Room. After you visit the Haunted Mansion, take a moment to examine the Pet Cemetery as you exit the attraction. In the top left corner of the cemetery, you will see Mr. Toad. His attract, which was, that just seemed a little grim to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Um, his attraction may be gone, but his spirit lives on in the hearts of his fans. Of course, you can still join Mr. Toad on a very different adventure to nowhere in particular at Disneyland. But, you know, this is one that just doesn't compare to the one that was at the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's nice to get that fix in, but mm-hmm. it just, you know, if only 4K videos would have been around back in the, the early 90s, so this stuff could have been documented even better than it was. Uh, I know. We, I, I think we'd all be a little bit more okay with the fact that we can't relive these attractions to this day. Well, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh opened on June 4th, 1999 and is based on the Disney featurette Winnie the Pooh in a Blustery Day. The attraction went through an extensive refurbishment in 2010 to make the queue interactive with a 100 acres forest theme. Pooh's Tree, which was once located on the site of the former 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Lagoon, has a tribute to that attraction inside the tree above the door. There's a little, like, um, looks like a tree knot, yep. but it's in the shape of one of the Nautilus submarines. Yep. So, anyway. It's worth crawling up in there for. Oh, it is, and bumping your head, yeah. <laughs> which I do. So I've not been in the um, interactive queue. When I have been, it's um, not working properly. Yeah, so. it, it's cute. Uh, it definitely, it from what I can remember, it was the first interactive queue really mm-hmm. installed here at Walt Disney World. And, you know, now that's that's the norm. That's what they're trying to do. Add, add as much interactivity uh, as possible for it. But, you know, some of the elements in there really kids just enjoy it so much and that's what's important well that's good one of my favorite attractions was unique to the magic kingdom the mickey mouse review when disneyland opened mickey mouse did not have an attraction or show in the park this was due to roy disney not wanting mickey closely associated with the park in case it failed 
Roy did not want their star linked to a failed enterprise, which is why Tinkerbell and Jiminy Cricket were featured in all the advertising for the park in its early years. By the time the planning for Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom began, Disneyland was a proven success. This time, the Imagineers gave Mickey Mouse a marquee e-ticket attraction, the Mickey Mouse Review. Although Walt Disney passed away before the planning of this attraction began, the idea for this attraction came directly from Walt. When discussing his new audio-animatronic process and its applications in the Enchanted Tiki Room and his uh, yet-untitled Haunted House attraction, Walt said he had similar plans for all the Disney characters. I have in mind a theater, he said, and the figures will not only put on the show, but will be sitting in the boxes with the visitors heckling. I don't know just when I'll do that. (laughs) Just when was October 1971, when the Mickey Mouse Review debuted as an e-ticket attraction. Originally, this nine-and-one-half-minute show was going to be called the Mickey Mouse Musical Review. That name appeared on some early posters and remained on the recorded last announcement in the pre-show. Amongst the Disney Imagineers who contributed to this attraction were John Hinch, Bill Justice, Blaine Gibson, and Wethel Rogers. So, did you see this this one before it closed? No, no, this was... Before your time? Yeah, this was before my time. And so I've watched the videos, just haven't seen it. I I remember, you know, the first time I discovered this attraction even existed was just in pictures. And that was right around, had to be, you know, 97, 98, 99, right as the the internet was taking off and people were starting to to really go crazy. People like Pete. You know, starting the Diz yeah. and everything, uh, having that connection started. That that's whenever really my uh, the discovering of Disney history really became important for me. It was whenever I would use the internet back then to to learn about not only what was happening at Disney World, but all the all the stuff that I had missed, all the stuff that I didn't mm-hmm. even know about uh, from before my time. And this was one of them. Yeah, that's what's wonderful about the internet in that we can revisit these attractions yep so um because luckily people took their super eight films of these and posted them online yep um now let's well let's 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 visit this attraction virtually um in the attractions lobby or waiting area which was decorated in hues of rose and pink the walls were lined with paintings of mickey mouse in costumes from several of his more famous roles from steamboat willie to the sorcerer's apprentice in fantasia uh, guests waited here before a host or hostess signaled it was time to enter the pre-show theater uh, guests would walk through a small portal on the east wall and into a room lined with several tiers of viewing platforms separated by lean rails the pre-show was an eight-minute film highlighting Mickey's career and the use of sound in his films. The first portion of the film was narrated by an animated soundtrack that moved with the sounds it was making. And this gag had been used in Walt Disney's 1945 The Three Caballeros, in which Donald Duck gets caught up in the soundtrack of a, of a catchy Latin song. At the end of the pre-show film, the focus was shifted to Mickey's role as host in the theme parks. 
The final scene was live-action footage of Disney characters pouring out through the front of the castle to a jazzed-up version of the Mickey Mouse Club march. Mickey Mouse then came to the front of the scene and urged guests to follow him along into the theater on their right. Come along, folks. It's time for the Mickey Mouse Musical Review. Guests then entered the main theater through one of several pink automatic doors on their right. The large room contained 13 rows of seats facing an 86-foot stage. The proscenium was draped with a large red curtain and flanked by two smaller stages resembling box seats. In the center of the curtain were the traditional theater icons, the comedy and tragedy masks, but they, of course, were wearing mouse ears and, and resembled the face of Mickey Mouse. The show was presented as a concert orchestra with Mickey Mouse as the conductor, with 33 functions inside his 42-inch body. Mickey Mouse was the most complex audio-animatronics figure to date. There were 23 Disney characters playing musical instruments, including Minnie Mouse, Daisy Duck, Goofy, Pluto, Scrooge McDuck, Huey, Dewey, Louie, Baloo, Caw, King Louie, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Rabbit, Dumbo, Timothy Mouse, Gus Gus, Jacques, the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, the Dormouse, Abner the Country Mouse, and Monty the City Mouse. All of these were audio-animatronic figures. Parts of famous songs from Disney films are performed by Snow White, the Three Little Pigs, the Fairy Godmother, Alice from Alice in Wonderland, and the Three Caballeros. Seventy-three characters are represented. Songs include Hi-Ho, Whistle While You Work, When You Wish Upon a Star, Hi Diddle Dee Dee, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, I'm Wishing, The Silly Song, All in the Golden Afternoon, Bippity Boppity Boo, So This Is Love, Zippity Doodah, and the Mickey Mouse Club Alma Mater. So let's take a moment to relive the show. The room grew dark, and the sound of an unseen orchestra tuning their instruments filled the room, whilst the curtains separated and were pulled back toward the wings. In the center of the stage, the shadow of Mickey appeared against a secondary curtain. Then Mickey came into view on his bright red pedestal as it rose from the pit. The orchestra soon rose around him. Spread out across 35 feet of the stage area, the orchestra's 23 members, ranging from cartoon short stars such as Minnie, Goofy, Daisy, and Pluto, to early film uh, feature film personalities like Dumbo, Timothy Mouse, The Mad Hatter, March Hare, The Dormouse, Gus and Jacques, all the way up to more recent, for 1971, film performers like Baloo, Caw, King Louie, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, and Rabbit. Their instruments were varied, tubas, timpani, and trumpets, ukuleles, kazoos, and clarinets. Caw played his own tail like a flute. Not too sure I've manage that one. Um, the audio animatronic figures ranged in height from the little 12-inch Dormouse to the 6-foot Baloo, not counting the long-stemmed Alice in Wonderland flowers. The orchestra played a medley of familiar Disney tunes, starting with Hi-Ho, then moving on to Whistle While You Work, When You Wish Upon a Star, and High diddle dee at the conclusion of that brief overture, Dumbo's tuba intoned the first few notes of Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, as the wolf's shadow snuck across the rear curtain toward center stage. Further right, a section of the curtain rose to reveal the three little pigs in a cross-section of Practical Pig's brick house. 
The pigs played and sang a few seconds of their signature song before the curtain closed over them and another section lifted to the left. The next vignette featured Snow White and some forest animals sitting on a wooded hillside. Snow White sang a version of I'm Wishing, the same version that emanated from Snow White's adventures wishing well at the Magic Kingdom until 1994, whilst the animals listened. As Snow White finished, an adjacent area of the hillside came into view from behind another section of Rising Curtain. Here, the seven dwarfs stood in their cottage playing the silly song. The molds from which these dwarfs were cast were reused many years later to create the dwarfs that now inhabit the cottage scenes in Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, and Tokyo Disneyland. In the Mickey Mouse review, the dwarf sang part of the song accompanied by Snow White before the curtain lowered on their setting. Now to the far right end of the stage, the curtain rose on a scene from Alice in Wonderland, with Alice standing in the midst of 15 oversized flowers. As Alice and the flowers swayed in time, she sang part of All in the Golden Afternoon. The next scene was from The Three Caballeros, and this was the show's most animated and comical segment. As soon as Alice's song drew to a close, a flying carpet rose from the pit to the left of the orchestra. On the carpet were Donald Panchito and Jose Carioca. They broke out into the main theme from The Three Caballeros in a blaze of music and color, with Donald on maracas, Jose on guitar, and Panchito firing two pistols, each shot sent sparks of bright light streaking across the room. The three had barely begun their song when the lights went out on the carpet. Instantaneously, Panchito and Jose, still singing on the small stage to the audience's right. Then Panchito fired a pistol, and the glow of his bullet raced across the stage, illuminating Donald on the left side stage. Donald shook his maracas vigorously and continued the song like the frantic duck he is. And with the sound of another ricocheting bullet, he disappeared and reappeared on the right stage. In another shot, and Panchito and Jose popped up where Donald had been just seconds prior. Moments later, the three were reunited on the carpet where they quickly finished the song and disappeared as quickly as they had arrived. The next vignette began with the fairy godmother and Cinderella in her scullery maid outfit, standing at the far left of the stage. The fairy godmother sang bippity-boppity-boo and waved her wand around. Soon, in a shower of twinkling lights, Cinderella was transformed into her princess incarnation in her beautiful ball gown. Then the rear curtain lowered as a projection of Cinderella and Prince Charming as silhouettes danced across the spotlight. Um, they sang, So This Is Love, as they waltzed. Clusters of hearts framed them on the curtain. When the projection faded out, the sound of the orchestra came rising up from the pit. To the right, Br'er Fox, Br'er Bear, and Br'er Rabbit rose into view and began singing Zippity-Doo-Dah. As they sang, the orchestra rose beside them. The three caballeros reappeared, and then the rear curtain lifted to reveal all the show scenes at once. The houses of the three little pigs and seven dwarfs were gone, leaving all the characters contrasted against a brightening sky in the background. Cinderella now stood with Prince Charming, and everyone joined in the song. 
A rainbow gleamed across the horizon as the voices and instruments of all the characters reached a crescendo. At the close of the song, the entire stage fell dark, save with a single spotlight shining on Mickey. His pedestal spun to face the audience as the other characters sang the Mickey Mouse Club alma mater. Mickey, all choked up, spoke, Well, folks, that concludes our show. We hope you enjoyed it. Then, as he let out a little mouse laugh, the main curtain was drawn and the show was over. This was a magnificent show. (laughs) Yeah, it's the one that I am deeply jealous that I never got to see in person. This first attraction built exclusively for Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom was the first to close. In 1973, the attraction was downgraded to a D ticket. And Bill Justice was very bitter about this because this he, he was so proud of this attraction. And in later years, in an interview, you know, one of the reasons given for the downgrade was because the theater was never full. Well, the theater held over 500 guests. Yeah, so the problem is... Well, the problem is when I mentioned the pre-show area, that only held 300 people. So as Bill said, you do the math. The theater could never be filled. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so so when representatives of the Oriental Land Company began touring Disneyland and Walt Disney World in the 1970s to choose the attractions they wanted for their new Tokyo Disneyland Park, the Mickey Mouse Review made their list. Of course, the least expensive option would be to send the original attraction to Tokyo rather than to build a new version. So the Mickey Mouse Review was closed in 1980 to be an opening day attraction at Tokyo Disneyland in April 1983. It was also time was a factor here. They would not have had time to completely rebuild from scratch um, the Mickey Mouse Review. It was the only attraction that was shipped to Tokyo rather than being replicated. It would play for another 26 years at Tokyo Disneyland. However, parts of the Mickey Mouse Review may live on. David Mumford, show designer for the refurbishment of the Alice in Wonderland attraction at Disneyland in 1983, or 84, claims that the Alice figure added during the 84 renovation came from the Mickey Mouse Review. In an article for the e-ticket magazine, David Mumford was quoted, The Alice figure was a last-minute addition after some debate over showing the character. There was a set of Alice figures in storage from the 1971 Mickey Mouse Review attraction in Florida. Included were some flower garden heads, the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, and Alice, so we used them at Disneyland in 1984. <laughs> Back in the Magic Kingdom, no attraction opened in the Fantasyland Theater until Magic Journeys in 1987. The 3D film was about a boy's journey into imagination. Most of it was set against a song of the same name written by Richard and Robert um, Sherman. The film had been an opening day attraction at Epcot Center's Journey into Imagination Pavilion, but was displaced by Captain EO and moved to the Magic Kingdom. Many guests may have strong memories of the pre-show song, Making Memories, also by the Sherman Brothers. We'll talk more about this film when we visit Epcot Center in a future episode of Connecting with Walt. So, Craig, did you get to see um, 
the wonderful magic journeys um i don't believe i probably saw it whenever it was in the park however <clears throat> i uh i did get to see it um at destination d um, a couple years back uh they they kicked off the attraction rewind portion of destination mm -hmm. d by showing us uh, not the 3d version of the film but the the 2d version of the film and uh -huh. what what a trip i mean for the people who were in there who had seen it before you know they they were loving that trip down memory lane and for the rest of us i think we were just sitting there with our jaws dropped like what the heck was this uh, bizarre show uh, i i think trip is the key word yeah. here <laughs> Yeah, because uh, I'm surprised you didn't that the smell of pot didn't hang in the air when they showed that because I think that is the only way to truly. And I am not a proponent of drugs, kids. Say no, but 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 that that's the only explanation for this film. Yeah, I... because th this played at Disneyland also um, for a time, and um, yeah, it, it, it was it was quite amazing. Uh, it's interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't even the song because the song is on um, on a lot of the older versions yeah. of of the theme of the Disneyland's fiftieth anniversary um, set. It's on there, and it's on other older versions of Disney World. Yep, um, you know, park CDs and records and all yep. that. Oh my gosh, you know, I don't know if it's online. If anybody ever recorded it in in their haze, I so wonder. I'll have to I look and yeah. see. But yeah. I, I remember some of those scenes really vividly. So, well, when Magic Journeys finally reached its destination and closed, it was replaced by The Legend of the Lion King, which debuted on July 8, 1994. Narrated by Rafiki, the show featured Disney humanimal versions of the famous characters from the hit Walt Disney Pictures animated movie. Disney humanimals uh, are larger-than-life figures that look just like their animated film counterparts. The Disney humanimals were manipulated by human animateurs hidden from guest view and were larger and more lifelike than any other puppets. Giant sets in the 125-foot-wide theater provided the stage for them for, for the larger-than-life humanimals, not just puppets, they were an extension of the live actors, controlling them below the stage. The pre-show featured a costumed Rafiki who told the story of Simba whilst the circle of life was shown on a screen behind Rafiki. After the pre-show, guests would enter the main theater to view the show. During the show, scenes from The Lion King were acted out with a combination of elaborate puppets, animation, and special effects. And some of the puppets were so elaborate they took eight people to operate. Songs in the feature film were also played during the show. Favorites such as I Just Can't Wait to Be King, Be Prepared, Hakuna Matata, and Can You Feel the Love Tonight were all a part of the show's song repertoire. The stage for Legend of the Lion King was 125 feet wide and was actually larger than the seating area to permit the use of giant sets, including an 18-foot pride rock that rose from below the stage. The Legend of the Lion King played in the Fantasyland Theater until 2002, when it closed to make room for Mickey's PhilharMagic. And so this one you d definitely saw. Yes, I, I remember seen this multiple times i my family loved it i 
as much as Lion King is probably the the big Disney movie during my childhood that uh, was most important, I remember not being so thrilled about this. Um, I there was something off about it. Um, I haven't gone back and watched any videos of it uh, since it's been gone to to discover really how I, I quite felt about it. But uh, the, the one thing that I want to... I could be completely off, but I think I remembered that... I, I, I don't even know. I For some reason, I'm thinking that there weren't seats in there for this show. And I could mm-hmm. be completely off. No, no, there were seats. There you might be thinking of the pre-show. Maybe it was not. A, maybe it was always just the pre-show that just irritated me, and so I never was in a good mood by the time we went for it. But yeah, I, I did not have good feelings about this show while it was there. I, I was amazed by the puppets. Uh, I just thought these are incredible. I thought I thought they were neat. You know, and it came off of the success of Voyage yeah. of the Little Mermaid. You know, over at the Disney MGM Studios, and um, and so and and I I thought that was I enjoyed that show as well. Yeah. So um, anyway, but um, Mickey's Philharmagic made its debut in October two thousand and three, and is a twelve minute show featuring three D effects, scents, and water, and features characters from some of the most popular Disney animated films. Mickey's Philharmagic is considered by many to be an updated successor to the Mickey Mouse Review. The long mural that spans the lobby is a composite of imagery from animated classic Disney films with musical themes like two. Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, Melody, Time, and Fantasia. So let's take in a showing of Mickey's Magic. So inside the theater, we hear Goofy walking around and getting everything ready for the show. Um, Minnie Mouse then talks on the PA system, and let's guests know that it's time to put on our special opera glasses. The show begins whilst the curtains are still drawn. It's noted that Donald Duck is still missing. Goofy raises the curtain and we see the stage is empty and Donald is sleeping in a large box. Conductor Mickey Mouse enters, wakes Donald and tells him to get the music instruments ready for the next show. Donald is startled and jumps into action, quickly throwing the instruments to their correct position. After Mickey leaves the stage, Donald notices Mickey's sorcerer hat sitting on the podium. Donald puts the hat on his head and tries to conduct the orchestra himself, but it's a jumbled mess of music. He gets angry when a flute keeps playing, so he throws it over the audience. The other instruments begin playing and they rise into the air. Suddenly, a magical cloud is formed and Donald is sucked into a vortex. The theater goes dark for a brief moment. A flame pops up on the screen. We discover that it's Lumiere, the candelabra from Disney's Beauty and the Beast. He jumps right into Be Our Guest song, and Donald plays along. At one point, an apple pie is in our face, and we can smell it when it gets burnt. The theater gets dark again at the end of the song. When the light returns, we see that the room is a mess, and that Donald has shrunk in size. In walk the broomsticks from Fantasia, and each one splashes a bucket of water on Donald, and a little bit on us as well. This annoys Donald, so when a smaller broomstick marches in with a bucket of water, Donald seizes the bucket. 
He's laughing until a much larger broomstick marches in and scares him. He hands the water back to the smaller broomstick, but the big broomstick still dumps its water on Donald, nearly drowning him. This transitions us underwater and into the world of the Little Mermaid. We briefly meet Flounder before seeing Ariel. Donald falls in love with Ariel as she sings Part of Your World. Donald tries to kiss Ariel at the end of the song, but he accidentally kisses an electric eel instead. The camera then pans up towards the surface of the water, and we can see the sun. This marks another transition, and suddenly we're out in Africa. The Lion King is the next animated film that Donald visits, and Simba sings I Just Can't Wait to Be King, and all the animals sing and dance to the song. After The Lion King, the show transitions to London, England, and the world to Peter Pan. We see Tinkerbell on the screen before Peter Pan, Wendy, John, and Michael land on Big Bend, and so does Donald, but he falls off the clock. Thankfully, even though Donald is a duck, he can't fly, so he's sprinkled with pixie dust, and he's able to fly around London during the song You Can Fly, and he tries to recover the sorcerer's hat. The flying sequence transitions into Agrabah and the world of Aladdin. We see Aladdin and Jasmine flying on a magic carpet, and Donald is on his own flying carpet. The song A Whole New World plays as Donald tries to fly around Agrabah and grab the sorcerer's hat. He finally catches Aladdin and Jasmine, and Jasmine places the sorcerer's hat on Donald's head. He's grateful until Iago sneaks up and knocks the hat off his head. Donald flies off the flying carpet, and apparently the pixie dust is worn off because he goes tumbling through the air. Suddenly, he's back in the magical cloud, and we see that Mickey Mouse is now wearing the sorcerer's hat and conducting the Philharmagic Orchestra. Donald finally falls into a tuba, and the orchestra finishes playing the Mickey Mouse March song. The end of the song, the tuba blasts Donald across the theater and into the wall behind us. We can turn back and see Donald's legs dangling out of the wall. He frees himself but falls forward, crashing to the floor in the room behind us. The show finishes on that note, and we're asked to return the opera glasses to the special tubs at the theater's exit. You can find Donald in the gift shop next door. Now, Mickey's Magic features the largest seamless projection screen in the world, representing the most immersive wraparound image Disney has ever created. The screen measures 150 feet long and 28 feet high. Donald's voice, as heard in the show, was created out of performances from Disney short films by Clarence Ducky Nash, the original voice of Donald Duck. Tony and Selmo, the current voice of Donald, added a few lines that were not recorded by Ducky in the past, such as humming the melody to Be Our Guest. The show features the largest cast of classic Disney animated stars who have ever performed together in a single 3D show. Animator Nick Ranieri, who brought Lumiere to life for Disney's animated classic Beauty and the Beast, returned to render him in 3D for Mickey's Magic. And animator Glenn Keane, creator of the magical Ariel in The Little Mermaid, also returned to develop her in 3D. The entire production of Mickey's Magic was created totally on computer, representing the first time all these Disney characters were completely modeled and animated by computer. 
Now, I am not a proponent of cloning attractions between Disneyland and Walt Disney World, but I believe an attraction featuring Disney classic characters should be in every Disney resort worldwide. So, so Craig, what what are your thoughts on Disney's uh, Mickey's PhilharMagic? I am I love this show. I uh, you know not only is it that perfect, the weather is so hot. It looks like it could rain at any second. What else can we do? What haven't we done in a while? Like it's it's just a really good show. Um, yeah, of course it skews to the Renaissance era movies, with the exception of Peter Pan and. Um, you know, they could have easily just dropped that as well too, and kept it all Renaissance era. But it's, you know, it's it, it's unique. It's it, it's very enjoyable. Um, I, I really can't say anything bad about it. I, I love it every time I do it. I think it's got some very funny moments. I mean, just the first time Lumiere pops up on the screen, saying bonjour, it just that makes me laugh every single time. I don't know mm-hmm. why. Um, it's it's just it's one of those shows you can't help but walk away smiling. Yeah, uh, this is this is one of my must do attractions at the Magic Kingdom. I always do sometimes more than once. Um, I, I love this show for all the reasons you said, and just that I think the classic characters need to be in the parks. Yeah, and um, you know I, now. Would I want this or the Mickey Mouse review? I would really prefer the <laughs> Mickey Mouse review because of the audio animatronics. I really yeah. feel audio animatronics is what sets Disney apart from other theme parks and amusement parks. And the more they can use those and 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 you know expand on that technology, I think the better. Um, <clears throat> so I, I I always hoped when when they closed the one down in Tokyo, they could somehow redo it and maybe bring it to Disney California Adventure. Because I think there's definitely, uh, th- that would be a park for that, yeah. that attraction. You know, if not, I wish they could find a place there for Mickey's PhilharMagic. Um, but yeah, I-, I think this is an absolutely wonderful attraction. Um so now, now, now we get into the more modern years, probably the years you you remember a bit more. Oh yeah. Um, in in 1988, it was Mickey's 60th birthday, and the Magic Kingdom decided to celebrate this in a very special way. Unused land to the east of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland was cleared for Mickey's birthday land. This temporary expansion, which was hastily designed and built in just 90 days, was only intended to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Mickey Mouse. This was the smallest land in the Magic Kingdom and as the only and it was the only land not directly connected to the park's central hub. Upon entering the Magic Kingdom, guests would hear announcements from Minnie Mouse regarding a special surprise party she was having for Mickey. Guests would board a special birthday express to the new Birthdayland station, a new train stop that was added for this new tune land themed around the town of Duckburg from the DuckTales television show. After touring Duckbird, guests would move on to a large circus-style tent that was a location for Mickey's surprise party. Once inside, guests were treated to a show that featured Mickey's pals, surprising him with a 60th birthday party. Guests could also personally meet and have their photos taken with Mickey Mouse in his dressing room at Mickey's Hollywood Theater. 
Mickey's Birthday Land was also home to Grandma Duck's farm that housed chickens, ducks, goats, pigs, cows, miniature horses, and the famous cow Minnie Moo, whose left side featured a large hidden Mickey. After a move to Fort Wilderness, Minnie went to that little patch of heaven in the sky in mid-2001. <laughs> Um, Mickey's Birthday Land was so popular that Disney decided to keep the collection of cheap but colorful tent structures and make it a permanent land, the first edition since the Magic King opened. The land closed in April 1990 to be remodeled and turned into a new land called Mickey's Starland. A month later, Mickey's Starland opened. Characters found in the popular Disney Afternoon cartoon shows were moved in. And along with some classic characters, a new show was created called Mickey's Magical TV World. The show changed a bit each year to reflect the television programs and films of the season. For a brief period during December of 1995, Mickey's Starland became Mickey's Toyland, before closing in early 1996 to be refurbished into a permanent land, Mickey's Toontown Fair, for the park's 25th anniversary. Now there were country-style homes for Mickey, Minnie, and their friends who have gathered together to celebrate the arrival of Toontown Fair. The centerpiece of the land was a pint-sized roller coaster called the Barnstormer. But Mickey's Toontown Fair closed on February 11, 2011 to clear the way for the Fantasyland Enchanted Forest expansion. So, so Craig, what do you recall from all these versions of Mickey's um, Birthdayland, Starland, and Toontown Fair? I mean, obviously, I, I visited Toontown Fair a lot um, after... I was down here. I mean, I didn't go in and really do anything, um, just just passing through and, and taking it in. But uh, my my big memories come from Starland. That was that was my time period. And uh, like any good kid of the late '80s and early '90s, I was hooked on Ducktales and Chippendales Rescue Rangers and the rest of Disney Afternoon cartoons. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I can, a hundred percent, I can remember being uh, back in the theater, watching the show, meeting the characters. Um, you know, I, I, there was one point in time that I was attached to the hip to my Chippendale Rescue Ranger <laughs> dolls that I had. There's one picture of me somewhere out there where I'm on the my first trip on the way home. Me passed out on, I believe, my dad's my dad's suitcase just gripping both chip and dale under my arms uh so yeah this uh, starland was was big for me for sure yeah uh, when carol and i went out for our honeymoon to walt disney world it, mickey's birthday land had opened and then when we first brought our children to disney world a few years later it was mickey's starland and they loved it uh, um, you know, so and then they're around your age, so yeah. they um, they really enjoyed it, and um, yeah, and then and then of course I remember um, you know Mickey's Toontown Fair, which of course you know begat the popularity of this land. Of course, inspired uh, you know the, the our Toontown at Disneyland. Yeah, but I you know as well. Yeah, yeah, but I always feel that um, you know just because I got to visit 
Toontown out in Disneyland for the first time. Uh, not too long after our Toontown was taken down. I, I believe that Toontown at Disneyland is the far superior version of the two anyways. So well, that's our, just ours is the, Ours was the more urban. Yeah. You know, the more urban one. It's so sort of the, the story was, you know, they, they lived in our Toontown, but they vacationed <laughs> in, in Toontown Fair. I like that. So, um, anyway. But... But anyway, but um, so you probably remember, Craig, at the D23 Expo in 2009, the new Fantasyland expansion for the Magic Kingdom was announced. The $400 million expansion would result in the closing of that permanent Mickey's Toontown Fair area and would double the size of Fantasyland by 2013. The first phase to be completed by 2011 would include a themed village for each Disney princess in Fantasyland Forest. Uh, just to run down what was described uh, back then at the expo, um, at Dreams Come True with Cinderella, guests could meet Cinderella face-to-face in her country chateau, share a dance or train to be one of her royal knights. Guests will be dazzled when the fairy godmother transforms Cinderella's dress into her beautiful ball gown before their eyes. At a birthday surprise for Sleeping Beauty, it is party time inside the Briar Rose Cottage, nestled in a lush forest setting. The three good fairies give Aurora the sweet 16 party she never received, and everyone's invited to join in the surprise celebration. Of course, as in the film, havoc ensues when the three fairies start wielding their magic wands. An enchanted mirror will transport guests from Belle's father's cottage to Beast's castle for an enchanting storytelling performance during Enchanted Tales with Belle. This new district will invite guests to the Be Our Guest restaurant, one of three enchanted dining rooms inside Beast's castle. And just outside the castle in Belle's village will be Gaston's Tavern, another themed eatery. In Under the Sea, Journey of the Little Mermaid attraction, Ariel and her friends will entertain in a ride-through adventure, featuring favorite songs from the popular animated feature. The Big Top comes to Dumbo's Flying Circus with a magical flight high above brand new circus grounds, twice the size of the classic attraction. Inside a stylized tent, guests enjoy midway games and other fun-filled experiences that will eliminate having to stand in line for the attraction. The second phase of the expansion, which is scheduled to be completed by 2013, will be the construction of Pixie Hollow, featuring Tinkerbell and her pixie friends. So, Craig, what was your reaction when you heard these initial plans for the Fantasyland expansion? Uh, I don't want to oversell it, but uh, perfection for what (laughs) they wanted to do with the area. Um, You know, while it didn't necessarily appeal to me with everything that was being offered, um, it's just so different and and something that would have would have blew people away had every little bit of bit in piece fit in the way it was supposed to. Uh, You know, I'm I can't say I'm disappointed that it didn't work out that way, but um, I. I, I I'm upset that the changes were made, but there was good reasons why to make them. So, 
I was looking forward to seeing some of these effects. Yeah. I know the first thing I thought of, though, was that, you know, the guest capacity was probably going to be pretty low for each of these. Yeah. And that, that was going to cause issues, and that was probably going to cause disappointment. And um, anyway, but but although Disney fans are very excited at the idea of a major expansion coming to the Magic Kingdom, it was noted all the attractions would primarily appeal to young girls. Imagineers, though, proceeded with the plans. However, in November 2009, Disney president and CEO Bob Iger announced that Jay Rizzullo and Thomas Staggs would switch jobs at the company. Tom, who had previously been the chief financial officer, took Jay's position as the chairman of Walt Disney Parks and Resorts. Once Tom Staggs moved into Jay's office, he took a second look at the plans for the Fantasyland expansion. It's probably worth noting that Tom was the father of two young sons. Tom asked two questions of Walt Disney Imagineering. Can a more balanced approach be taken with this expansion so it includes attractions that shows and shows that would appeal to both young boys and young girls? And is there a way the county bounty, the retail shop from Mickey's Toontown Fair, could be retained? Of all the retail shops at the Magic Kingdom, the county bounty was the second only to the Emporium on Main Street, USA, in terms of in-park retail sales. Tom Staggs did not want to close this shop down to build a full-size version of the pixie dust tree. Since the county bounty was housed in a tent-like structure, the Imagineers recalled that a proposed project for Disneyland's Fantasyland that could work for the Magic Kingdom and support the county bounty. Back in the 1970s, Dumbo Circusland was proposed for Disneyland, but never received final approval and was used as inspiration for what would replace Pixie Hollow. And I remember seeing the model for this in on Main Street USA, the Disney so- Showcase sh- um, yeah. Shop on Town Square. That originally was like the Blue Sky Cellar over at Disney California Adventure. Oh, okay. And that's where they had the models of, of future attractions. And they had this huge model of... Um, of Dumbo's, you know, the circus land yeah. there. And it was cool. Well, one of the things was Dumbo was going to be over there, but also there was a, a very audio animatronic heavy um, dark ride that was, you'd ride through it and there would be um, a lot of the classic uh, characters like, um, you know, Horace Horse Collar, Clarabelle the Ooh. Cow and others, Dumbo, they would be doing uh, like circus tricks and oh, things cool. like that as you rode through. And and different characters would be doing those. And it looked really cool, but it ultimately didn't get um, approved. Yeah. So, so Storybook Circus, which was fully completed, um, opened um, on October 4th, 2012. So that's what replaced Pixie Hollow. As for the issue of appealing to both young boys and young girls, the Imagineers went back to their files for another proposed project, this time from the 1990s. The Seven Dwarfs Mine Train was a proposed attraction for Phase 2 of Euro Disneyland, now Disneyland Paris. However, when that park failed to meet its financial targets, it was decided to build the more affordable Storybook uh, Storybook Canal Boat Ride, Casey Jr. Circus Train, and 
and the old mills swirls. Since Snow White would now be represented in the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, the displaced princesses would need a new home. The opening day attraction, Snow White's Scary Adventures, closed on May 31, 2012. The original attraction was removed to be replaced by a new princess meet-and-greet, Princess Fairytale Hall, which opened on September 18, 2013. Sadly, none of the interactive special effects planned for the princess meet-and-greets in the original expansion plans were included. The new Fantasyland expansion was completed on May 28, 2014 with the opening of the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. So, so Craig, you were there for the, the grand opening. I was there, too. So, uh, so what, what do you think, now that you've experienced the Enchanted Forest several times, what do you think of this? Uh, I'm, I'm not, not a fan. Uh, obviously, I enjoy Be Our Guest and the detail that went into it. I enjoy the detail that went in throughout the entire land. Um, I, I love, I love the little mermaid in there. I, I even enjoy enchanted tales with bell. Um, uh, mine train. I have been very vocal about it on the Disney world show. And I will say it again. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan. Um, and this is one case where I think, you know, the sacrifice of, of, getting rid of mine train and adding in more small uh yes uh, not not as high capacity experiences but more unique experiences would have been for the better but uh it is what it is it's it's not for me but i know there's plenty of people out there who love it and then last but not least storybook circus well that's actually my favorite part of the entire area I, i'm a really? huge dumbo fan um so i love i love the whole style of it um yeah i, I it's just i i enjoy everything about this area whether it's daytime or nighttime uh, especially in the summer whenever you know the water elements are just going crazy and watching watching kids just you know, lose their minds running through and and having the the character meet and greets in the back. Granted, they're not the they're not the characters wearing their classic costumes, but uh, it's I just I really like this area back there. That it's funny because for me that's probably the area I like the least. Although mm. I like the shop and I do like what they did with the train station and um, but for me I love Enchanted Tales with Belle. I, I just think that's so impressive what they do. And Carol and I go through that all the time. Uh, it's unfortunate that she has to transfer to a wheelchair. They can't take yeah. scooters through there. But um, I just think that's really well done. And, and even the queue and, and the, the the living room area and all yeah. that is, is really well done. I Little think Mermaid I... is nice. I, I like the queue yeah. and all that. Otherwise, it's it's our attraction pretty much in Disney California Adventure. And I like the I like the Seven Doors Mine Train. It's mainly um I, I like the mine. I like the audio animatronics in there. Yeah, it's Enjoy just that. it's not for me. It it wasn't yeah. worth the time. It's not worth the lines. Um it's just it, it's a letdown. I, I see it as a a D a D ticket attraction that <laughs> was shown all the promise of being an e-ticket but 
I, I remember when, before it was announced, Carol and I went with the Diz on one of their exclusive adventures by Disney Backstage Magic Tours. You know how when they take you through Imagineering, they tell you, we're going to show you things you can't yeah. share. And we saw stuff that was for one of the new ships that I asked about. And I said, oh, I guess we should have covered that up. And then, um, but one of them was the model for New Fantasyland was there, but they hadn't yet announced that they were making a change to the original yeah. plans. But when we saw the model, they had already cut out the center area and sitting to the side was a model of Seven Dwarfs Mind Trade that they were getting ready to drop in. Uh, oh. And we were absolutely sworn to secrecy yeah. not to share this information. Um, that's, so, um, that was a big one. Yeah, so, yeah, so that was. That was huge. So... Um, so, but I do think it was a nice addition. I do like that since it's not over the utilidors, they it, it could be more lush, yeah, and have the water features, the trees, the foliage to truly be a forest. And um, so, so I thought they did a good job yeah. with that. And I, I think I think part of the reason thing for the storybook circus for me is it's a little too concretey and is closer to the original um, fantasy land of yeah. Magic Kingdom. Where um, there's not a lot of trees and things like that, like Disneyland's. So uh, for me, it's it's anyway. all about that Dumbo, though. Yeah, I, love yeah Dumbo. I do like I do like Dumbo. So now, whilst Disneyland's Fantasyland has seen only a few significant changes in over sixty years, the with the addition of Alice in Wonderland and It's a Small World, the nineteen eighty three reimagined Fantasyland, and the addition of the Fantasyland Theater and Mickey's Toontown. The Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland has seen a long history of change. Um, now, Craig, we began this episode with a quote from Imagineer um, and Disney legend Tony Baxter saying, if anything at the park was pure Walt, it was Fantasyland. So do you think the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland of today is still pure Walt? Uh, I, I don't know the most delicate way of putting this. Um or if it's even going to come out the right way, I, I think you'll understand, and hopefully some other people will out there. No, I don't think Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland of today is pure Walt. Um, I, I I think it's definitely pure Disney, and I I think it could even be argued that it's you know corporate icon Walt Disney, not the man that you know you you and i study and want to learn more about and everyone out there want to learn more about but like the 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 kind of the the idealized version of walt disney yeah maybe fantasy land is pure walt disney but not not pure walt I, i just i don't i don't get that feeling from it okay so interesting i i think i do with our Fantasyland at Disneyland. I don't know if that's because I grew up with that park. Um, I, I or, get it. No, I, I, I understand it there, too. I would say yeah. Disneyland is pure Walt. It's, there's that energy, that aura running through that entire mm-hmm. land. It's just, you feel it. You don't get that in Magic Kingdom. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that is just because, again, it's such a compact realm at Disneyland, and it's layered. You know, yeah. you you have like Casey Junior Circus Train is elevated, 
as storybook circus. We have the the different um, elevations of the village, and you know things like that. Yeah. So um, the Matterhorn looming over it, you know the 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 two levels of Alice in Wonderland. So I, I think the, I, I think maybe that's what gives it its energy. You know, um, you know, you see Casey Junior Circus Train chugging along at an upper level as the storybook canal boats move along. Dumbo swirling. You see Alice in Wonderland in the exposed part of its um, track. You see the little caterpillar, you know, vehicles going yeah. by. The the Matterhorn bobsleds are zipping by. The the monorail skirting the edge of the land. So yeah, there's a lot going on in a really tiny area. Yeah. You know of the park, so anyway, so anyway, well, this was a fun walk, yeah, through fa- a long one through Fantasyland. <laughs> so, but but it, it's a park with a long history. So so many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Since the World Began, Walt Disney World, The First 25 Years by Jeff Curdy. It's Kind of a Cute Story by Rolly Crump. Disney Dispatch, Old Fantasyland, History of the Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom. Disney and more, Remembering the Mickey Mouse Review, October 28, 2012. Widen Your World, The Mickey Mouse Review. The Walt Disney World Chronicles Year One Mickey Mouse Review by Jim Corcus for AllEars.net. Disney Extinct Attractions, The Legend of the Lion King. Extinct Disney, Mickey's Birthdayland and Starland. Mickey's PhilharMagic, AllEars.net. Magic Kingdom Fantasyland Expansion, AllEars.net. Disney World unveils its more boy-friendly plans for the Fantasyland Expansion Project. That's a long title. By a friend of the Diz, Jim Hill, January 2011. And I, I want to give, as, as I list all of these, I really want to give a special thanks to my, my, my lovely research assistant, my wife, Carol Bowling. Uh, Un, the, the, there's a challenge with um, putting together these stories for Walt Disney World that we have less of with Disneyland. Not as much is written about uh, Walt Disney World as for Disneyland. Um, many, many, many books, articles, stories, interviews exist for Disneyland. And, that, and there's one reason and one reason alone for that. Walt Disney. It's his personality that that was central to that park and so much was written unfortunately once Walt Disney passed away there was no central figure that was really responsible for creating um, Walt Disney World of course as we talked about in earlier episodes of Connecting with Walt Roy was a powerful force in seeing through the creation of the Florida Project without him it may not have come to fruition but um, really Walt Disney World was created by committee and as a result not as much is written about it so it's just such a Herculean effort you know as I'm going through all my books that I have much of and magazines and all that I let Carol know uh, this is where I need more in-depth information and see she starts her research so this 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 one definitely was a partnership in um, (laughs) finding all the material for you, as all the shows are. So, so a special thanks to her. Yes, and, know a lot um, of people out there appreciate it. Yeah. So, and uh, I want to give another mention to folks that want to learn a little more about Walt Disney. Um, a year ago, 
um, Craig and I talked about a PBS broadcast, um, American Experience, Walt Disney, and we we shared our thoughts, um, which you can hear in an earlier episode of Connecting with Walt, and I talked about it on our Disneyland show. Uh, most Disney historians that I consider knowledgeable and credible were were critical of this portrayal of Walt Disney. So, it, but if you want to see a more accurate portrayal of Walt Disney, that that is not a sanitized version. I highly recommend the DVD um, Walt the Man Behind the Myth. Now, this was originally broadcast in 2001 in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of Walt's birth, and it's hosted by Dick Van Dyke, and it contains many, many, many interviews, not only of Walt Disney, but of people who worked closely with Walt and knew Walt. Um, And it is being remastered and is going to be, it's been out of production for a few years now but it's being remastered and it's going to be re-released in October by the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco so you'll be able to purchase it sometime in October at the museum but also through their online store so check out their website waltdisney.org and um, there is a book that accompanies um, Walt the Man Behind the Myth which also serves as the catalog for the museum so again if you can get your hands on this DVD look for it when again they've remastered it cleaned it up and um, you'll be very very happy um, to own this um, for your collection So please join us next week for episode 21, in which Craig and I once again take you on a walk down Main Street, USA. But this will be Kansas Avenue, the main street of Marceline, Missouri, in the early 20th century, where Elias and Flora moved their family to Marceline in search of a better life. This is when the magic of Walt Disney's life began. So, Craig, until our next episode, where can our listeners hear you and find you? Well, you can find me on the Disney World Edition, Universal Edition, uh, wherever else I'm popping up. See me on Twitter. See me in the parks. I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere You you could possibly imagine. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know. I can imagine some pretty uh, bizarre things. <laughs> but, uh, what about you? Well, you know, you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulata Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park, the park that started it all, and we talk about all the other Southern California theme parks. I talk a lot about the Walt Disney Family Museum and even more Disney history. You can listen to us live on Mixler at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time, and join in our little chat session as we record the shows. You can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes. And they're also at thedizunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com, Twitter at mbowling121, Facebook, I'm Musketeer Michael, Instagram Michael Bowling the Diz. 
thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother, Roy. <laughs>